Well, hello, my name is James, and it's so great to be with you this evening to delve into this topic of revival. Uh, but to begin, I have a, a very important uh, question for you. This is what it is. How much do you bench? <laughs> I wonder if at Ancon this week, if we had uh, some sort of competition of strength, who would win? I can think of a few contenders. Um, Mac Green in uh, Business and Law. I know he uh, hits the gym. Uh, Vhash in Aces. I know he works out. Uh, and I don't know them as well, but uh, just judging from afar, some of the health guys, like, I think they might be in contention. Now, as for me, I I'm not a, a very strong person. Um, I, I do go to the gym with my wife, and uh, we, we do these sort of outdoor circuit classes. And very occasionally, if we can't do one of those, we, we've done like a, a body pump type class. You, you know one of those ones that go to a soundtrack and the instructor telling you to pump it up? It's a bit embarrassing. But uh, don't ask me what I bench. That's not my approach to the gym. Soccer with the education faculty, though. Feeling good? We're going to take out the title. This is our year. I think so. Now, muscle mass is one measure of strength. But what about in our spiritual lives? How strong do you feel spiritually? Because if I'm honest, even though I work with the EU, sometimes I can feel like a bit of a spiritual weakling. I find myself prone to wander, struggling in the fight against sin. And I certainly don't appreciate God's people, the church, in the way that he does. What, what about for you? How do you feel spiritually as you come to Ancon this week? Maybe God's love has felt distant from your life in recent months. You may feel a bit spiritually dry or jaded by your experience of church. You might find yourself stuck in certain besetting sins, discouraged and struggling to know if you can change. And these sorts of feelings of spiritual weakness are not just a personal phenomenon, they are felt by us collectively. As we know from the latest Australian census, Christianity is statistically declining in our country. Christians are routinely dismissed by the media as irrelevant. And sadly, in recent years, we've seen the church engulfed in scandals and moral failure. What hope is there in the face of such apparent spiritual weakness? It's easy to feel discouraged and maybe even powerless. Tonight we come to the topic of revival, and as we reflect on Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, my hope is that the strengthening work of God's Spirit would be at work amongst us. But before we get stuck into that prayer, we need to establish some context to the book of Ephesians. The portside city of Ephesus was a commercial and cultural center. In Acts 19, it's recorded how Paul came to Ephesus and proclaimed the gospel both in the Jewish synagogues and the lecture halls of the cultural elite. Paul ministered in Ephesus for about three years, and over the course of that time, both Jews and Gentile Greeks heard the word of the Lord, became Christians, and formed into a church. But they didn't have an easy ride. Businessmen in the city whose income from shrine sales had been undercut by this new religion, went on strike. Much worse than any industrial action, they violently rioted in the city and forced Paul to move on. 
What was left behind was a multicultural church in a cosmopolitan but hostile city trying to follow Jesus. Feels a bit familiar, I think. The Ephesian church consisted of people from diverse ethnic and religious backgrounds. There were Jews who followed Yahweh, read the Torah, and grew up following the Old Testament law. And there were also Greeks who had previously worshipped Artemis and grown up in a pagan culture with very different moral values. Whether it was in sexual ethics or speech or family norms, their formation was very different from their Jewish co-believers. And yet Paul taught that these Gentiles were now inheritors of the promises of God. Through the cross, Jews and Gentiles were one body, a spiritually united people. There was no hierarchy. They were together blessed with every spiritual blessing and had a guaranteed position in heaven. But in the here and now, the Ephesian church felt like a disparate group, struggling with sin, facing disunity, with the apostle they loved suffering in prison far away. They felt weak and discouraged just as we often do today. It's in the face of such apparent weakness that Paul, in chapter 3, prays for the Ephesian Christians. He prays for them to be strengthened. And my prayer is that this will be your prayer. Just as for the Ephesians, may the powerful and reviving work of God's Spirit strengthen us to the glory of God. This prayer consists of three parts, an address, appeals, and adoration. Paul begins the prayer with an address, and he has a certain posture of prayer. He kneels. He says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The most common posture for Jewish prayer was standing, but Paul feels his smallness and the power of God so acutely that he won't even stand upright. He says in this opening sentence that God is the father from whom every family derives its name. And that description tells us at least two things about God. As a father, he is relationally close to his people. He loves them. He holds them dear. But as the father from whom every family derives its name, he is powerful and authoritative. Let me show you. In the ancient world... A family's identity was grounded in who their father was. So much so that the word for family, patria, comes from the word for father, pata. When Paul says that God is the father from whom every family derives its name, he's saying that in a much greater sense than any earthly father, the ultimate head over all relationships is God. Whether it be Jews or Gentiles, angels or earthly peoples, The final authority and the one before whom Paul kneels is God the Father. Kneeling, he says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's desire is that the Ephesian Christians will be strengthened out of the riches of God's glory. And so for the first of three times in this prayer, he prays for power. Now that that word power is used in all sorts of ways today. We think of uh, superpowers in our comic books and movies. 
In geopolitics, we think of countries who possess military power or soft power. What's the nature of the power that Paul is requesting for the Ephesians? He prays for power through the Spirit. He is concerned with spiritual power. That sounds a bit exciting. Is this a power to do miracles? No, it's not that. Paul prays for power in order that Christians may be strengthened such that Christ may dwell in their hearts. Paul is asking that the Holy Spirit would work deep in the core of Christians' lives so that Jesus may live in our hearts and exert his loving rule. Now, this idea that Jesus lives in our hearts, that sounds a bit strange. If Jesus is a man with a body, how can he dwell in Christians' hearts? Is it just a metaphor? No, I don't think so. Jesus really does come to dwell amongst his people. And the way he does so is by his spirit. Let me explain what I mean. In the Old Testament, the place where God dwelt, the site where his presence and power were concentrated was the Jewish temple. The temple building was the location that God filled by his spirit. But amazingly, in Ephesians, God's dwelling is not a building, but a people. Jews and Gentiles together are described as the temple in which God lives. We read in Ephesians 2, In Jesus, the whole building is joined together. This is talking about the church. And rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The Spirit is the means by which the one true living God comes to dwell and live with his people. The presence and power of God, which were formerly concentrated in a building, now dwells in us. We are the temple in which God lives by his Spirit. When you put your faith in Jesus, he comes to dwell with you. Faith is not a matter of mere intellectual assent to certain facts. Faith involves entrusting your life to Jesus, making him the head of the house of your heart. Paul is praying in this first appeal that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians would be strengthened such that Jesus' presence may reign at the center of their being. But he keeps going. Prayer appeal to, he kneels and he says this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This prayer appeal parallels the first of Paul's prayers. And here again, Paul prays for power, and the outcome he's seeking is similar. He wants God's presence to fill his people. But there's a crucial new element introduced. Paul wants God to empower Christians in order that they will know his love. Now, love has all sorts of meanings in our world today. Perhaps you're a fan of romantic comedies. Can I get a hands up? Rom-com fans? Okay, okay. Every Christmas... I'm forced to watch the latest Netflix Christmas movie. If you've seen these movies, maybe you can uh, commiserate with me about the low quality of acting. 
I'm talking about movies like A, a, a Christmas Prince, A Christmas Prince, The Royal Wedding, A Christmas Prince, The Royal Baby, or uh, the Rival series, uh, The Princess Switch, The Princess Switch 2, Switched Again, uh, The Princess Switch 3, Romancing the Star. Now, now, these are movies about romantic love, but the love of God is much bigger and more powerful than any type of romantic love. The love of God is for Christians both our spiritual foundation and our moral fuel. It is the foundation for our confidence and assurance before God, and it is the fuel that fires our moral engines to live for God and grow into maturity in Christ. Paul says in verse 17 that Christians are rooted and established in love. He uses two metaphors here, one from botany and one from building. He says Christians are rooted in love. Like a great tree, our spiritual roots plunge into the fertile soil of Christ's love. God's love is our spiritual life force. It's what makes us grow. It's what nourishes us. And secondly, Paul says Christians are established in love. The foundation of the house of our lives is Jesus' love. Every brick we lay is undergirded by that solid base. In Christ, God's love for you is constant. It is unwavering. It is objectively true. In Christ, God looks at you and he loves you. No matter what you have done, no matter how much shame you might feel. In Christ, you are loved. Through Jesus, you can approach God with freedom and confidence. Not on account of your own goodness, but because of his grace. The blood of Jesus was shed for your sin on the cross to bring you near to God. But God's love is not only our spiritual foundation, it is our moral fuel. Paul prays for power in verse 18 that the Ephesian Christians all together may grasp the immensity of God's love. He uses spatial dimensions to indicate just how vast is this love. It is a love so wide that it encompasses all of humanity. It is a love so long that it goes on for eternity. It is a love so high that it exalted Christ to heavenly glory. And it is a love so deep that it reaches the most degraded of sinners. Paul wants the Ephesians to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, knowing something that's beyond knowledge, that may seem a bit paradoxical. What's going on? Paul is praying that the love of God, which is so extensive as to be beyond our full comprehension, would nonetheless be the thing which we come to know more and more. His vision is that we would evermore realize just how much God loves us and just how good that is. And Paul prays for these things, not primarily so that we feel emotionally comforted, although that is a wonderful result of knowing God's love. He prays for something even bigger. He says in verse 19 that Christians are to know God's love in order that they may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God can be experienced by his people through comprehension of his love. This is a bit overwhelming. How could Christians, ordinary people like us, experience God's fullness? 
How could the fullness of the one true living God be experienced by a weak group like the Ephesians? Seems staggering. And to understand what's meant by God's fullness, we need to look at two other passages in Ephesians that expand on this theme. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn with me. The passages should come up on the screen. Ephesians 1 verse 22. I've used some colored text to help you connect the ideas that we're going to be examining. Ephesians 1 verse 22. This is talking about Jesus. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's start with the orange. Jesus Christ, in his divine nature, fills everything. As the ascended Lord, he is the head over all things. There is no square inch of the cosmos over which he does not proclaim mine. And yet, this ascended Lord has a special relationship to a particular people, The church, who are described as his body. The church is integral to Jesus' person. It is his crowning achievement and his dearest love. By the power of Jesus' cross, the church brings together Jews and Gentiles, smashing ethnic and religious barriers to make a new humanity. This is Christ's fullness. We are Christ's fullness now. But let me show you one other section of Ephesians that helps us with this theme. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 10, if you're looking at it in your Bibles. This is part of a longer argument. We're going to come in part way. It's talking about Jesus. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Just like in Ephesians 1, the ascended Jesus is head over everything. And from that position... He fills the whole universe. There's no corner of the cosmos in which he does not reign. What does he do from that position of authority? Let's read on. So Christ gave himself, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Just as in Ephesians 1, the divine Jesus fills all things, and he has a particular relationship of closeness with the church. But notice here that the church is still a work in progress. We are still becoming mature and attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The church is now the fullness of Christ, but it has not yet attained to the measure of that fullness. So when Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that Christians may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, he is asking that by the power of the Spirit, we may so grasp the immensity of God's love that the rule of the ascended Christ would be completely exercised in our lives. He wants the fullness of Christ's love and rule to be experienced. He is praying that God's people would be all that God wants them to be, to the praise of his glory. This is why Paul goes on to conclude his prayer in the way that he does. He kneels for a final time and he prays in adoration. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him 
be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. For one final time, Paul acknowledges God's power at work within his people. His power is so mighty that it far exceeds our highest expectations. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You might be thinking, I'm stuck in my sin. I can't change. That secret sin I keep going back to, that's not going to go away. Wrong. You can change by the power of God's Spirit. The strengthening work of God's Spirit in your life can bring renewal in you to the glory of God. You might be thinking, I feel spiritually tired. I remember a time in my life when my faith was active, but that time's long past, and now I'm just going through the motions. By the power of God's Spirit in your life, you can be spiritually revived. Christ can shine on you and wake you up. God is able to do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine. God's powerful work in his people is not so that we just feel good or live our best lives. God's spirit is at work in us in order that God may get the glory he deserves. The father of all families is to be glorified in all generations. As the church lives for God, fueled by the love of Christ, empowered by the Spirit, praise goes back to the Father. He was to be glorified in the Ephesian church of the first century. He's to be glorified in our Christian communities today. And he is to be glorified in God's global church for generations to come. But you might be wondering, how does this connect with revival? I thought that's what we're talking about. Let me join some dots. Melbourne pastor and author Mark Sayers has a really interesting little book called Renewing Church. Sayers explains that our cultural moment is characterized by societal anxiety. He's not talking about a clinical anxiety. He's referring to a heightened state of stress that pervades our culture and which seems to diminish possibilities for spiritual renewal. This is what he says. He says a feedback loop is at play. Our radical individualism and culture of deconstruction have rejected many of the cultural resources, such as community or traditions of moderation and restraint, and even the valuing of routine with which we historically absorbed social anxiety. With these buffers gone, levels of anxiety escalate. The more anxious culture becomes, the more crises are created, leading to poorly thought through and anxious solutions to our dilemma, exacerbating our problems." Says is saying we live in a time of escalating social stress, one in which we're buffeted by rolling crises that seem to want to pull us down emotionally and spiritually. We become reactive and angry, such that we lose touch of our inner convictions. We feel emotionally exhausted, so we avoid others and isolate ourselves from Christian community. We get hooked on our phones and binge on entertainment such that we no longer pray and struggle to even be alone with our own thoughts. Our concept of relationships is infected by sexualized media, which inhibits our ability to relate in healthy ways to those around us. Our system is pulling us down. But Sayers goes on to say how in stressed systems like ours, 
It is people who are self-differentiated and spiritually renewed who can become positive agents for change. People whose identities are not rooted in the unhealthy system can inspire others by their fearlessness and so model an alternative vision. For a sick body to become healthy, it needs white blood cells to renew its life. For revival to occur in our society, it first needs to take place in our own lives. You and I need the powerful work of God's Spirit in our hearts. God is able to strengthen us more powerfully than we can ask or imagine. By the work of God's Spirit, we can be renewed. And that doesn't mean we are passive passengers. We are urged to live worthy of the calling we have received, but we don't do so by ourselves. May you petition God by His Spirit to bring renewal in your life. May Paul's prayer become your prayer. Pray that God will strengthen you with power, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Pray that you may be rooted and established in the love of Christ by which you can have freedom and confidence before God. Pray that you may so comprehend the immensity of God's love that his very fullness would fill you that the power and rule of Jesus would reign in the center of your being in order that God may get the glory now and forever. Now, if you're investigating Christianity, I'm so glad you've come along to Ancon. I appreciate that some of this may sound a bit foreign. My invitation to you is to be open to the love and power of God. Investigating Christianity is a multifaceted endeavor. Of course, you want to ask good questions and bring your full intellectual capacity to consider the claims of the Christian faith. But if the Christian worldview is true and there is such a thing as a spiritual reality, then part of your investigation can be to try it out, so to speak. You can pray to God even if you still have questions and you can be honest with Him. You can ask that you would come to know this love of Jesus for yourself. God can bring spiritual renewal to you if you open yourself to his love and power. But revival is not just about individual renewal. Revival involves the powerful work of God occurring on a wide scale. And as we've already heard tonight, historically revival has resulted in whole Christian communities being deeply convicted of sin, having a renewed awe of God's power and overflowing with joyful evangelism such that entire towns and cities and even nations are touched by the love of God and the health of whole societies is improved. Often, revivals occur at low ebbs of church and culture, arguably in moments similar to ours, actually. One of the greatest revivals in history, spanned England and North America in the 1730s and 40s and became known as the Great Awakening. One figure who was instrumental in this movement of God's spirit was Jonathan Edwards, who ministered in the town of Northampton in Massachusetts. Edwards pastored at a time of great cultural and economic change when society was moving to an increasingly capitalist economy. Young people in Northampton were unable to afford homes, they were delaying marriage and there was increasing sexual promiscuity and alcoholism. It seemed like an unlikely place for revival to occur. Yet one Sunday in 1734, 
After a simple sermon on justification by faith alone, the townspeople of Northampton became strangely convicted of sin. They were struck by the enormity of God's holiness and were overwhelmed by his love. Jonathan Edwards wrote, The town seemed to be full of the presence of God, the fullness of God. It was never so full of love as it was then. And this religious revival wasn't restricted to this little rural town. It swept across the colonies of New England, and tens of thousands of people turned anew to Christ. The growth that comes in revival cannot be attributed to sociological shifts or communication techniques. To the contrary, revivals rewrite the dominant discourse. There have been many times in history when religion has been in decline, seemingly headed towards extinction. As Jonathan Edwards was ministering in Massachusetts across the Atlantic, John Wesley was at work in England. Wesley was born at a time of great religious and social decline. The slave trade was in full force, bribery was rife, alcoholism was widespread. For complex political reasons, many church ministers had been ejected from the country and those that were left were not particularly biblical or were even corrupt. It was a a pretty dire situation. But in Wesley's lifetime, the story of England was rewritten. A widespread religious revival gripped the country and changed the nation. William Wilberforce was mentored by Wesley and went on to abolish the slave trade. It was the result of this revival that university ministries, pioneered by people like Charles Simeon, came onto campuses. The immensity of change could not be accounted for through demographic shifts. This revival had one source, the one true living God. We live in a time when Christians feel weak and discouraged. Churches are racked by scandals. Christians are said to be on the wrong side of history. But God is able to rewrite our story by the reviving work of the Spirit. Could it be that under the sovereign hand of God, the rolling crises of our anxious age are a spur to force us on our knees in prayer? May we pray for revival in our time. In Ephesians 3, Paul asks that together with all the Lord's holy people, Christ's love may be comprehended that they may be filled with the fullness of God. Revival involves the powerful and widespread work of God's Spirit among whole Christian communities. As an evangelical union, may we yearn for such an outpouring of God's Spirit. May we fervently pray for revival, a revival which would bring confession of sin and deep humility like in Korea, a revival that would lead to the zeal to zeal for the flourishing of the church and the reaching of the lost like in the Illawarra, and a revival that resulted in a desire to glimpse the glory of God, to taste and see the goodness of God like in New England. Imagine fervent prayer beginning now during Ancon and continuing for the weeks to come. Imagine EU students longing longing desperately to know the love of God more deeply and praying for a powerful outpouring of His Spirit. Imagine the Holy Spirit coming on us with deep conviction. It might be uncomfortable. It might be awkward. 
but bringing about great joy in the gospel. As we come to our weeks of evangelism in second semester, imagine EU students overflowing with love and the gospel going out powerfully with hundreds of students across the campus turning in repentance and faith to Christ. There is no formula for making revival occur. It is a work of God. All we can do is seek it in prayer. In the EU, may we see sustained prayer for revival at Sydney Uni. This could take any number of forms. Throughout ANCON, you could commit to praying for revival in your prayer and reflection groups. And you could join the prayer meetings that the exec will be leading in free time. As we head back onto campus, when you catch up and pray with your Christian friends, you could pray that the Holy Spirit would strengthen you to grasp the immensity of God's love. In your small group Bible studies next semester, you could commit to praying for spiritual renewal in the hearts of God's people, that we may deeply repent and overflow in loving witness. In your faculty, you could hold a day of prayer where every hour of every day you come together to pray for a powerful work of God's Spirit. We don't know where we are in God's sovereign timeline. We could be a generation who witnesses God's reviving work in the coming months. But we could just as well be a generation of prayers, whose prayers God answers beyond our lifetime. The revival that Beth shared about, which began in Melbourne in 1902 and then spread to rural New South Wales, that was actually preceded by prayer meetings that began more than 50 years earlier. Small groups of Christians committed to praying for the city of Melbourne in the 1850s, but the full force of revival didn't break until the 20th century, after many of the initial prayers had passed away. We don't know where we are in God's timeline, but we've seen tonight that God is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. The church's ultimate growth strategy is prayer the reviving work of God's Spirit. So let's do that now. Let me pray. Almighty Father, from whom every family on heaven and on earth derives its name, we pray that out of your glorious riches, you may so strengthen us that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. We pray for power to comprehend the immensity of your love. We pray that we would know just how good that love is. We pray that you would bring renewal in our hearts. We pray that you would pour out your spirit, that the reviving and strengthening work of your spirit may be felt amongst us that we would be convicted of sin, find new joy in the gospel, and go forth in love to our world. We pray that we would be a people of prayer, that as we are buffeted by the crises of our age, we would cast ourselves on our knees and petition you to bring about your renewing work. You are able to do more, immeasurably more, than we ask or imagine. We pray you'd grow our faith.
to you be the glory in all generations, now and forevermore. Amen.